Okay, when you guys are ready, grab your Bibles. We're in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we come to the very end of our series in Ephesians. And Missy Parker is going to read the scripture for us. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 24. Verses 10 through 24. Ephesians 6, 10 through 24, this is God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take, the, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak." so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, take this word, your word in Ephesians, this prison epistle, and open up our hearts in the moments we have together before the table to show us that you indeed are more beautiful and you are more believable than we could ever dream. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the end of Ephesians is kind of like you setting out to build this incredible building together. It's, it's, as though, it's as though God gave his church this incredible set of instructions to go and build this fabulous new building. And all of us have worked hard together to build this thing over the course of the year. Some of us use hammers, some of us use uh, hold the nails some of us are the ones setting the two by fours we're all working together we've been doing it for almost a year now in the book of ephesians we come to the very end of the book and it's as though paul says okay now that you know exactly what it means to be the church there's one more piece of advice i need to give you there's one more thing you need to know 
as you work on this building, as you build this fort, as you go and you win the world for Christ, as you become his hands and feet in the world, oh, by the way, finally, by the way, there will be people who are shooting at you. (laughs) There will be people who are looking at you with AK-47s and RPGs, and they have you in their sights, so go, good luck. It's as though Paul comes to the very, very end of his epistle and he says to us, this is what it looks like to be the church. Oh, and by the way, you're going to be shot at. Your family is going to be attacked. It's as though Satan and his demons have you in their sights and they're going to try to unravel your life as ferociously and as systematically as they can. Are you ready? That's what Paul says. One of the great things about Christmas, I, I love, I love, everything about Christmas I love. I love the, the Christmas movies. <laughs> I love the Christmas movies. Like yesterday, praise God for the ice storm because it gave us all an excuse to watch like every Christmas movie <laughs> that's on TV. And I love the ugly sweaters and I love the shopping and I love the trolley that takes that actually, we have public transportation for once during Christmas in Owasso. It's great. I love everything about it. But oftentimes the battle for Christmas that we see in traditional suburbia, or traditional, even in downtown Tulsa, the battle for Christmas is actually, it's misdirected because the battle really is a battle, if you're honest. It's a battle for traditional cultural values of Christmas. Like we want to preserve Christmas. We say we want to fight for it as a city, and so we keep Christmas in the parade, right? It's a Christmas parade. It's not the holiday parade. But oftentimes when you fight for Christmas, you suddenly find yourself fighting for the traditional cultural values of Christmas. That's actually not what the Bible says Christmas is at all. Because the Bible's understanding of Christmas, yes, it is traditional, but it's not cultural. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the Bible. It's universal. It crosses all times and cultures altogether. And oftentimes our Fierce struggle to preserve Christianity is actually not quite fierce enough. Our fierce struggle to preserve Christmas is not as fierce as Paul calls us to be. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us two very, very, very simple but impossible things. It tells us, number one, how do you stand strong amidst the Christmas stress? How do you stand strong in the midst of the Christmas Spirit, how do you stand strong in a Christian life? You do it with his armor, and you do it in his community. Those are the two points. It's very simple in the time we have before we come to the table. You do it with his armor, and you do it in his community. Can you say that with me? With his armor and in his community. How do you stand strong in a Christian life? Again, with his armor and in his community. You leave out one of those. And you're going to be something, but you will not be a picture of the church. Historians will tell you that when you look at a suit of armor, right, we just read, you see a picture of the armor in Ephesians 6. When you look at a suit of armor, any historian who studies medieval armor will tell you that you can find three things out by looking at a suit of armor. You can tell, number one, the atmosphere where the fighting took place. You can tell, secondly, about the enemies that they fought, right? What kind of shield do they have? What kind of helmet? How thick was the mail or was the armor? 
And three, you can tell about the formation with which they fought. You can tell if it was a guerrilla-style warfare or if they stood in a straight line like the Revolutionary War. You can tell a lot by the armor when you look at it. Paul, most commentators believe, wrote this letter. It was the first of four epistles that he wrote when he was in prison for the first time. Some of you know this. Ephesians, and then after Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, and then he wrote Philemon, and then he wrote Philippians, the four prison epistles. And so it's very, very um, clear that Paul's in chains of some sort because he says that at the very end of this passage. And it's also very probable that not only is he in chains, but he's, he may actually have been chained to an armed guard. So he's sitting here writing to the churches, this circular letter of which we have the one to Ephesus about what the church ought to be. And he's trying to think of an... And he sees this guy next to him, clad in his armor, and he goes, ah, and finally, there will be people who are trying to take you down. And so therefore, you need to put on the armor of God. What's the atmosphere? What's the atmosphere that we fight in as Christians? What is the atmosphere? The atmosphere is one of violence and it's one of aggression. J.C. Ryle once said that true Christianity is a fight. Do we find in our own hearts a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh fighting, lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is a sure and probable sign of sanctification, of God making us more and more into his image. Ryle says that all true saints are soldiers. The children of God have two great marks. They may be known by their inward warfare as well as by their inward peace. In other words, most Christians really have no sense of feeling at all. Most Christians, we might argue, those who proclaim Christ, it, it seems, when you talk to them on the street, and we are in the same boat, many of us, it seems that what we mean by Christianity is peace, love, and joy, when really Paul is saying that, do you know what else marks you? It's a fierce sense of aggression against sin in your heart. And it gets the fight for self-sufficiency that you long for and that you create. In Sports Illustrated this week, I was reading about an old um, a player at A&M named Martellus Bennett. He now plays tight end for the Chicago Bears. And Martellus writes what it's like to be in the NFL. And he talks about the athlete's struggle for a sense of identity. And he says... Most athletes look at life like this. This is just who I am. They're defined by their athletic ability, making the jump shot or running fast. And a lot of time, it just consumes them. They become what they would define themselves as instead of defining themselves within the world. 
a lot of times athletes don't have an identity. They don't know nothing about themselves besides this is what I do. Football is who I am. One of the hard things about Christmas is that each of us realize that we are more materialistic than we want to admit. We fight for that perfect present. We set that budget for how much we're going to spend at Christmas, and we blow right through it. I was at Best Buy yesterday getting something for my dad, and I walked by those new Samsung watches. You know those new Dick Tracy watches you can talk to? You know, and it, Yeah, you've seen these. Yeah, I know you have. Don't lie. They're cool. And I walked by, and for about 10 seconds, and maybe in 10 minutes, I don't know, time kind of stood still in the midst of it. It was all, I, I thought, man, I really need one of those. You know how much I could do with that? That'd be so awesome. And then I got bumped by a lady trying to push a cart down the aisle, and I came back to my senses. Listen, we, 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 all, we all fight this multiple personality disorder. Your chief identity is not as a businessman, is not as a father. Your chief identity as is as a Christian. And Paul tells us that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to realize that you've got to fight for it. There is nothing passive about the Christian life except receiving salvation. And that is completely of grace. But the mark that you are in Christ is that you fight for it with all you've got. And that you struggle to get over your vanity. Like yesterday during the ice storm, Lauren and the kids and I sat on our back porch and we just watched all these beautiful trees in our backyard fall. And for about five minutes, I was really angry at God. Lord, this is, we love this backyard. It's beautiful. Our house looks like it belongs in more Oklahoma now. And then I read on the news about the persecuted church in um, the Sudan and in Nigeria. People are getting their heads chopped off. Your son, Blake, could be being killed for your faith right now. And you're griping about your trees. Oh, it was very humbling. Paul says that our atmosphere is fierce. It's intensive. We're to be aggressive against sin you know why because there are forces of evil against us it says beware against the devil's schemes in verse 11 do you see that in your text beware against the devil's schemes it says rulers authorities cosmic powers over this present darkness spiritual forces of evil that devil most time when we read this text we get caught up in verses 11 through 13 trying to figure out the occult trying to figure out the layers of the demonic world you know what paul's point in mentioning all these things are is do you know what his point is it's simply to say do not underestimate the power of the forces that are against you you should know three things about satan and demons here they are are you ready you should know number one that satan is a very very real person He's not just an illusion of evil. He is not just a metaphor. He is a real person who Jesus says in Mark 10 that I saw fall from heaven like lightning. He's real and you should show him respect. 
The second thing you ought to know is that Christ has authority over all evil. In Revelation, it says that Christ will ultimately defeat Satan and throw him into the abyss where he'll be locked up forever and ever. Christ has the ultimate authority. And thirdly, your focus should not be on Satan and his demons. Your focus should be on the riches and the resources you have in Christ. Do you remember, do you remember the story in Luke chapter 10 where the, where the disciples are going off and they're casting out demons and they're like amazed? Like, Jesus, like we're casting out demons, it's amazing. And you know what Jesus says to them? He says, look, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But you know what? You know what you should be amazed about? Look at Mark 10, 28 sometime and read it. You should be amazed that your names are written in heaven. One of the struggles we have as Christians is we don't realize the resources that we have in Christ. And we tend to see things like demons and and we tend to get all interested in it. Trying to read more about it. Trying to think about, now, what's a demon? Is Is it like a lieutenant? Is it... Paul's point is to say, do not underestimate the power of the forces against you. That's his point. That's the atmosphere in which you live. And you have to look to Christ himself to be the one that gives you the power in the midst of the devil's schemes. When he's shooting at you, when he's taking down your trees, when he takes away your bank account, when he takes your children because of sickness. You rely on Christ himself. This passage is about armor. You can tell the atmosphere of a soldier by looking at the armor. And 500 years before the first Christmas, there was an old Roman scholar named Heraclitus. And Heraclitus said this, of every 100 men, 10 of them shouldn't even be in the battle. 80 are nothing but targets. Nine are real fighters. They the battle make. Ah, but one of them is the warrior. And he will bring the others back. What Paul is doing at the end of the book of Ephesians is he's trying to bring his whole argument to a climax to show you that this armor is not your armor. It's called the armor of God. Therefore, it's an armor that he himself wears as your warrior and as mine to fight our enemies in this incredibly dangerous atmosphere. Jesus is the one warrior that does fight for his people. Jesus is the one warrior who comes battle-clad and ready with the belt of truth. Jesus says in John 10, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Ron just read in Isaiah 9 that, behold, the light has come to the world. Jesus is the one who has the belt of truth because he is truth. And as you put that belt of truth on, you are standing in union with Christ, the warrior who fights for you. Jesus wears the breastplate of righteousness. He is absolutely a man of integrity as to his character. He is beautiful beyond all description. Augustine said, no man, no matter how gifted with speech, 
he might be, can find words to describe the beauty of Jesus. But woe behold those who don't try. Jesus is our breastplate of righteousness. He is the one who is the righteous sacrifice for you and for me that we might be able to go free. Jesus wears the shoes of the gospel of peace. Behold, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, Romans 10. John the Baptist looked at Jesus and says, I'm not even worthy to untie the guy's sandals because he was bringing good news as the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the warrior. Don't you see that? Jesus carries the shield of faith because it's his faithfulness by which we are saved. Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. He was faithful to us when we were unfaithful to him. Remember what happens after he sees John the Baptist? Remember he goes out into the wilderness, right? For 40 days and 40 nights. And he's fasting there in the wilderness. You and I would have wussed out after like day one. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan comes to him three times. A real person, a real being, Satan goes to him and he says, Jesus, eat this bread. And Jesus says to Satan, fiery dart. And Jesus is faithful and holds up that shield for his people. And he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is a faithful one. Satan takes the arrow, dips it in pitch, lights it in fire. Jesus holds up that shield again for his people, for you and for me. He knew you in that desert. Do you know that? And he held up that shield for you. And he says, you should not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan dips his arrow in pitch, lights it on fire, shoots it at Christ again. Jesus holds up that shield and he says, God says you shall serve him only. You worship him and you serve him alone. Your Roman shields weren't like these little Captain America little discs, you know, that we see our little boys wearing. They were like full bore doors. And Christ himself carries that heavy, heavy shield for his people to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. It's right there in the text. Those are the devil's schemes against us. And it's by looking at Christ who bears this armor for his people that you're able to have hope. And it doesn't stop there. He wears for us the helmet of salvation. What he began to do in you, Christ is faithful to complete it. The same way that you're saved, friends, by receiving the grace that is yours through Christ by faith alone is the same way that you walk in the Christian life. You do not walk in the Christian life by trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You continue to look at God's word and say, Jesus is the great warrior. He is the one fighting for me. And you rest in that union with Christ together. Okay, well, that's great, Blake. Thank you for the beautiful metaphor. How in the world has Jesus fought for us? We'll go back to Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
He's fighting for you. In love, he predestined us for adoption, verse 5 of chapter 1. He is your warrior bringing you home. Through faith in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, chapter 1, verse 7. In him, you have obtained an inheritance. He wins the spoil for us, so we get to share in his wealth. In him, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, verse, one, verse 14 of chapter 1. In him, even when you were dead in your trespasses, you were made alive together with Christ and raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. By grace you have been saved, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. He's fighting for you. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for those who love him. Chapter 2, verse 10. In him, you came from radically different cultures and upbringings to be made into one new humanity in the church. Chapter 2, verse 11 through 22. God makes you into a new community. He's fighting for you. In him, you are saints and members of his household. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God. Chapter 2, verse 21. In him, you have boldness with access to God. You have access to the one who created every icicle on your tree. And it's absolutely free because your warrior fought for you. Chapter 3, verse 12. In him you are rooted and grounded in love. Chapter 3, verse 17. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all you could ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Listen, friends, when you read Ephesians chapter 6, recognize, number one, the atmosphere that you fight in is a lot more dangerous than you give lip service to. They are coming after you. They will try to trip you up in every way they can. But do you know who fights for you? Do you know the resource that you have in Jesus? Cry out to him. Ask him for his protection. He's there protecting you, but he wants you to know he's there. He loves you, and he is there with redeeming love, fighting back those arrows dipped in pitch and lit on fire for you. Do you see that this Christmas? Do you know that he fights for you so much that the one who is at the Father's side when he created the world, takes the form of a baby. The weak and the foolish things of the world might shame the strong. Jesus became a baby. He became a baby. He took on the armor of the incarnation to be the warrior for you. Isn't that amazing? The same one who holds all things together by the word of his power couldn't even utter a word and was at the breast of a Jewish teenager and yet he loved you enough to humble himself. That's humbling. Ask.
How do you stand strong in the Christian life? You stand strong with his armor. It is not yours. You have to recognize the atmosphere you fight in is dangerous. The enemies are fierce. But you have to recognize the formation in which you fight with his armor and in his community. Notice that it says, with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What do you do with that word? Praying together for each other. What, what piece of armor, you know, those of us who have been in the church a long time study this, right? You have the posters with the armor. Have you ever, what piece of armor is missing? What part of your body is exposed? Your back. Do you know why? Because Jesus assumes your brother's got your back. Jesus assumes that the fight has gotten so fierce that there are men that are circled around together fighting off the enemies. And do you know who has my back? Ron Weber has my back. And Andy Coleman has my back. And Mitch Dees has my back. And I have the hairs. And I fight against sin, not because it's all about personal sanctification, but because my brothers need me to fight sin. And part of the glory of being the church that we miss is that it is not just about knowing Jesus and then going to do your own thing. You're, it is, there are rare exceptions. I have to say this carefully. I do think you can be a Christian without being in the church, but it is the rare exception, and it is not the norm. Paul assumes that if you're a believer, you're in the church. So all of this semi-churched awaso, I'll go to church whenever I want, that is not, that, the scripture knows nothing of that kind of on-again, off-again Christianity. Deciding to come to church for us shouldn't be an option because I need you there, not because I care if you're full of seat, because I need you to pray for me. You've got my back and I've got yours. And if you're struggling with a sin, that struggle is not your alone. It may be so personal you don't want to talk about it, but you've got to fight that thing because it affects me. It affects your wife. It affects your husband. It affects your kids. The only piece of armor we do not have that Jesus does not provide is armor on our backs. Which makes perfect sense, right? Because Jesus was stabbed in the back by one who knew him like a brother named Judas. Jesus was clad as the armor for us. And he got stabbed in the back because his brothers didn't have his back. Do you have your brother's back? Friends, amidst the Christmas season, grow in your awareness of the beauty of the incarnation. But also at the same time, Grow in the necessity to pray. That's what the entirety of verses 14 on say. To pray for each other, using God's word, praying for each other, interceding for Paul. Paul intercedes for his brothers. Do you do that? If we're going to be a church for a wasso, we've got to be a church who stands together, who prays for each other, who when people come to Trinity, they don't just see a church with good music and good preaching. Yeah, they use the Bible, great. It's Presbyterian, I didn't really get that. But you know, it's okay. It's a, listen, we need to see it as a church where brothers have each other's back. 
which means that we prioritize being in community together. That we go to community group, not because it's something the church does, but because you've got to be with brothers and sisters who know you, who pray for you. It means that on Sunday mornings, we come to corporate worship, not because we want to fill the seats. That's not the point. We don't care about numbers and nickels and noses. We care about hearts. And therefore, we want to be here together because we need each other. We need to sing and confess and reconcile and fight and listen to the sermon with as much energy as we would listen to our beloved tell us how beautiful we are. And we do that together. That's what it means to be the body of Christ. So this semi-churched attitude that so many of us have, it's one of Satan's schemes. You fight the Christian fight with Christ's armor and in his community. The two go together. And if you do that, you're beginning to get to the depth of the joy that can be yours in Christ alone. You remember the Grinch. The Grinch began to get this. You remember the famous Theodore Seuss Geisel story. The Grinch. Jim Carrey. The Grinch himself even knew it was something more. And the Grinch with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without uh, tags it came without packages boxes and bags and he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before what if Christmas he thought wasn't bought from a store what if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more what if Christmas means more about community than you could have ever imagined that your family celebrations some of them happened last night some of them are going to happen in the next couple of days are a picture of how Christians have each other's back. And they give each other gifts of grace together because they're reminding each other of the greatest gift of all, that Christ, our warrior, battle-clad in armor, came in the form of a baby to be completely vulnerable, to die the death we should have died. Isn't that beautiful? Nothing could be more joyous The incarnation brings to ear the Christmas joy for all to hear. Christ, our warrior, armed with might, laid down his privilege and his right to remain at his Father's side so that we, lost, confused, might hide under the armor of his love. Friends, remind each other of the gospel. See Jesus Christ in the armor of the incarnation the babe who came for you to fight your battle with you and lean into that armor in light of your union with Christ and then seeing him, seeing him pick up that armor and put it on. Quit wussing around and fight because your brother needs you to cover his back. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christianity is not about us. It is about restoring the world to rights through the paradox 
of the warrior come in flesh in the form of a baby. Lord, I pray that you will forgive me, forgive us for thinking that Christmas was all about me. Help me to pick up the armor that you tell me to put on and stand firm with a belt of truth and a breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation because my sister, my brother, need me to draw from the resources that you give us, Lord Christ, to fight. Lord, help us to repent of our self-saving strategies and to rest in our identity as your people. Lead those of us who have never trusted in you to lean into you by faith. For you are our great warrior, Christ our Lord. Amen.